many of those moments in my life did I have like that that you didn't think about it, but also maybe prepared me for what was going on, whether it was a leadership role or working together as a team or giving direction. And I saw all these different moments I had that was a leader and did this and that. I was like, wow, these moments did add up. Every moment in our life meant something. And you just don't know that when that moment that you don't think means anything is going to show in your life. Welcome, everyone, to Do Well and Do Good. You're here because you have the desire to create financial freedom, but you also want to make a powerful, positive impact on the world. This podcast exists to tell the inspiring stories of men and women who have achieved both, people who do well and do good. I'm your host, Dorothy Ilson, and I'm here to help you discover proof that individuals have the ability to make a massive impact. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to episode 66. I'm so excited that you're here. But before I introduce today's guest, I want to make sure you're following me on Instagram. That's the best place to stay on top of what's going on with the show. Find out who my guests are each week, what the solo episodes are about, and to get a taste of my own entrepreneurial journey. You can find me at Dorothy Ilson. That's D-O-R-O-T-H-Y-I-L-L-S-O-N. I am so excited to tell you about today's guest, Dave Sanderson. Many of you listening may remember January 15th, 2009, which was when US Airways flight 1549, better known as the Miracle on the Hudson, ditched into the Hudson River. See, Dave not only survived that crash, but he also started to realize that the moments that made up his life really prepared him for what was about to happen. In this conversation, Dave and I talk about how the lessons and strategies that he learned throughout his journey were really instrumental both that day and in the days following. Dave started to realize that one can actually grow from traumatic life experiences. And now he's an author and internationally sought after speaker who shares practical and implementable strategies that anyone can use to not only survive their personal plane crash moment, but to grow and thrive in its wake. I absolutely adored my conversation with Dave, and I know that you will as well. So without further ado, here it is. Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Dorothy, thank you for having me today. Well, it's truly an honor to have you here. I mean, I know, like many of my listeners, I'm sure, um, the movie was so emotional that that dictated or that uh, displayed this experience that you lived And so, you know, I really am eager to get into the story of the crash. But, you know, first, Dave, set the stage for us. Tell me about your life and your career before the miracle on the Hudson. Oh, thank you, Dorothy, because it was, uh, I had a 30 plus year sales career, starting in selling copiers door to door all the way to my last position when I was head of uh, a certain division for a very, very large technology company. And that's why I was traveling so much. I traveled over 100 times a year working with that company. In addition to doing all of that and having a wife and four kids, I also was the head of security for a guy named Tony Robbins. So I had a chance to travel and get to know Tony, but travel with him all over the world and learn the things that he does to keep himself at that A-game level. And that was a great education for me, to be able to be around that. Also, bigger picture, serving him and making sure he could do what he needed to do when he got on stage, which was a great lesson for me likewise, is the level of service that you need to be able to give to be able to grow and live. So those are those are some of the things I was doing. I was also very involved with my church and because I was uh, giving back uh, in that way. But I was very fortunate to be able to um, 
actually is a blessing to be on that plane that day. People ask me all the time, was it? I said, it's a blessing because it's turned out to be an amazing experience for my life. Let's just jump straight into it because I, I know I'm dying to know and, and everyone is as well. So Dave, tell me about those moments leading up to the crash. Did you realize what was going on? It was about a minute after the plane took off. And Kaylee, like everybody else, probably like you and everybody who's listening, you don't pay attention when you get on a plane. You just go back and sit down and start doing your own thing. And that's exactly what I did because I flew so much. I know everything, right? But uh, it was about a minute after we took off and so I heard an explosion. And I was to see 15A, which is four rows behind that left wing. So when I heard it, it got my attention. So I looked up, I looked out the window, and all of a sudden I saw fire coming out beneath the left wing. So I knew something had happened, but I fly so often that planes have multiple engines. I know they have multiple engines. So we're just going back to the airport because I felt the plane banking. So I said, okay, we're just going back to the airport. But I think that's what I tell people. I think that's where God's grace entered because no one knew at that moment, no one knew in the plane, what happened on the plane side when I was on the left side also happened on the right side of the plane. And it happened simultaneously. And that's why I think it was part of the miracle that doesn't get talked about a lot. So I truly believe, Dorothy, if you would have heard a bang, bang, people would have thought probably a terrorist attack, something different. But we heard bang. So everybody thought, okay, we're going back to the airport. So I think that was part of the grace that we only heard one explosion. And Happy having all those birds hit at the exact same time. That's, that's amazing. But as soon as it hit, I felt him banking. But I saw as we were going over the George Washington Bridge, I heard the captain say, this is your, this is your captain brace for impact. I knew at that point it was more serious. Because as we crossed over the bridge, the bridge, for people who do not live in that area, and I don't live there, but I've learned a lot about it, the bridge is roughly 600 feet up. The plane was roughly 1,000 feet at that point. So we were roughly 400 feet above the bridge descending. As I looked out the window, as we crossed the bridge, people's faces were looking up at us. And you can look down, and you can see people's faces. That's how close we were to the bridge. So I think that that has a lot to do with it too, getting that thing over the bridge. But that's the moment where I did my prayers. My, you know, I just asked God to forgive my sins. I, didn't, I mean, I know anything between me and God at that point. You know, I mean, it's, it's not looking good. And you could hear some people talking on their cell phones and typing on their phones. It was so quiet, but people were just like, yeah, I love you, love you. I heard all that people calling. But as we crossed over the bridge, it was about one minute from the time we crossed until we crashed into the river. And it was extremely a hard hit. And I tell people, it's hard to explain, but we had a lady who was on the plane who worked for NASCAR. And someone asked her and sort of put it together and it sounded like hitting the wall like at 150 miles an hour. That's how hard the hit was. So if you can imagine going side, sideways into a wall going 150 miles an hour, that's how hard the hit was. And I went back in my seat and up in my seat. And when I came back up, I opened my eyes up because, Haley, when I was going down, we, I don't think anybody thought we were really coming back. I think everybody sort of thought that if I make it back, I'm probably going to be extremely injured. That's what my thought was. If I survive this, I'm probably going to be pretty beat up. But um, that didn't happen, fortunately for us. Well, and I, I know that everyone survived, of course, but were there any serious injuries? Well, there, the, the flight attendant in the back, Doreen, cut her leg because she was in the back of the plane. She... She took the hardest hit because the plane hit backside first. And she was in the total back of the plane. So she took the hardest hit. And what happened is something came up underneath through the bottom of the plane and sliced her leg. And she had the most, the biggest probably physical injury. I had hypothermia and, and the gentleman who I was in the hospital with fractured his sternum. And one other, one other lady I know had hypothermia. But other than that, uh, that's what was amazing. No one had any serious injuries except for Doreen who sliced her leg and basically had to get stitched up and went home. I mean, miracle, there's really no better word for it. And this experience of you hearing 
brace for impact, you know, believing that these are your last moments. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine I mean, for every single person on that plane, that is a life-altering experience. I mean, it has to be. And so, you know, the impact occurs. Was it just mass panic in the plane at that point? How did people react, you know, as the water started coming in? Well, water started coming in immediately. And depending where you were on that plane, I was towards the back in 15A, water started anywhere from ankle knee to waist deep. So the further back you were, it was more waist deep up. Further front was more ankle deep because the plane was sitting sort of an angle into the water. So the back of the plane was pretty much underwater. But we're, there's a picture of the plane where my window, where I was sitting, is about halfway in the water. And we were pretty deep in the water. But the term I used that night, and I was interviewed by Katie Couric, and I was, I was like, it was controlled chaos, where no one was losing their minds, but people were moving extremely quickly. So things were happening quickly because, man, water's coming in, things sinking, you don't know what's going on, and people were just trying to get out of a plane. So no one was stepping over anything or anybody like that, but it was pretty uh, moving pretty quick. Now, you, Dave, you were in the 15th row, right? But you actually ended up being the last person to get off the plane. Passenger. Last passenger. Last passenger. Yes. Why was that? It wasn't by, by choice. My game plan, be very candid, when my game plan, when we hit, I said, I am alive, is to get to the aisle, get up and get out. It's exactly the aisle up, out was the first thing I saw about. When I got to the aisle, though, something happened to change that entire game plan. All of a sudden, when I got to that aisle, all of a sudden, I heard my mom in my head talking. And my mom passed away in 1997. But there was something in my head, I hear her voice saying, if you do the right thing, God will take care of you. If you do the right thing, God will take care of you. And I tell people, what I realized a few years later is, my mom never told me what to do. She would always make me make a decision, which I think was a great thing my mother did. So I don't think as parents today, and I'm guilty of this, we don't make our kids make decisions early enough in life so they have, they have consequences. But when I heard that, it's like uh, the right thing for me was to help other people. So I climbed back to the back of the plane and just got behind everybody else, started making my way out with everybody else. And in the back of the plane, was about waist level, a little deeper. You know, waist level deep was 36 degree water. So things were going pretty quick. And, you know, there's some things floating in the water because of the impact, right? Some of the luggage is floating up and things. But as I was making my way out, the first light that I saw was on the right side of the plane, which was about 10F. So my game plan right then was to get, get out of the plane. And, you know, I saw people getting on the wing. So I'm getting out of the plane. But when I got to that door, you know, it was, a very, it was an amazing sight because there was no room on the wing or the boat for me. It was already filled up. But people all, all of a sudden were already being rescued. And this is like three or four minutes after this thing happened. Then two to four minutes, people were being rescued. So when I started to get out, there's no room. So that's why I was inside the plane from about waist deep in 36 degree water for about seven minutes. And then all of a sudden, I hear people yelling at me to hold on, hold on. And at first, I didn't know what they meant. But what was, what was happening was, is the plane was floating down the river because of the current. Hudson River's got an extremely fast current. So this plane is floating down the river. So as the plane was floating down the river, the little lifeboat was floating out into the river. And they, like I, and I probably, everybody's listening, they don't read the, who reads the little brochure they give you, right? No one reads it. It's actually tethered to the plane, but no one knew that. So that's why I was holding on to this lifeboat about seven minutes. And the first picture was on Good Morning America. When I did my interview with Good Morning America, it was me, a picture of me holding on to this lifeboat, hanging out of the plane, waist deep in the water. And that's the moment I realized that I was the last passenger off the plane because I was still in the plane where all this, everybody else was, all this stuff was going. That's when I found that out. Obviously, there's an intense amount of PTSD that comes with an experience like this. I mean, what were the 
the rest, what was the rest of that day like? And then the days following, did it really hit you early on? Well, Kaylee was moving really quickly at that point. Once I got out and got to shore and fortunately for me, there were three people waiting for me when I got to shore. Cause when I found out that the, the ferry, whoever the ferry captain was knew that I'd been in the water. So they called ahead. So they had two EMTs and a guy from the American Red Cross. And that's why I speak so passionately for the American Red Cross now. They were there, right there to help. But for that, 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 that time from I got on the ferry all the way through the ho- to getting to the hospital was so fast moving. You know, you didn't have time to think, right? Things were just happening so quickly. And I didn't really, it didn't really hit me until later that night. And I was basically had hypothermia. So I, was, I couldn't move for about five hours because they were just trying to heat my body up. And I had this bag of air. I had no clothes on this whole time. They had this bag of air just going up by down my body. And, and finally, it got me to a, a room upstairs, and I was by myself with the nurse. And she turned her TV on. All of a sudden, I'm seeing pictures of plane crashes. The one in the Indian Ocean with the planes toppling through the water, and one that's going into the water up in New- Newfoundland, right? And showing the one I was on, I'm like going, wow, this is amazing that we survived this thing called a plane crash. And that's when it hit me. And that's the moment I was like, whoa, what did I just experience? And then the, the representative from U.S. Airways, my person, Dor- you know, Doreen, came and supported me. But that's when I first hit, hit me, Dorothy, at that moment, probably at 2 o'clock in the morning, when I was, we, she turned the TV on. And also I saw these plane crashes. I'm like, whoa. Did you know that this was, or I guess, did you have a feeling that this was going to lead to such a drastic change in the rest of the course of your life? Or were you just expecting to go back to work and then kind of get back to what you were doing? That's my, I thought exactly. I mean, you know, yes, I had a lot of media attention right then. I was in New York. What do you expect, right? I mean, it's right there. And so I knew there, but when I got back home and, you know, we finally got home and it was, you know, very emotional coming, walking to the airport, I had escorts. And, but when I came down the escalator at the airport, there was a bunch of media right there. And it sort of freaked my kids out a little bit. I mean, it's like all of a sudden this is hitting you, right? But it's like, okay, I'm at the airport, no big deal. So I get home. And my daughter had a basketball game that night. She was in ninth grade, had a varsity basketball game that night. So we were going to go. And, you know, I was just being called left and right. I was just, you know, I couldn't process. But when we got, this is when it hit me. Dorothy, that's a great question. Because I really haven't talked about this moment. When, so we went to the game. And, you know, I'm sitting there. People are coming up to me. And that's very cool, right? But all of a sudden, all these TV cameras come to the game. <laughs> and they're watching, they're following. I didn't know they were following me all around town. And they show up at the game. And they're filming me watching the game. And it's like very surreal. And that's the moment I realized this is probably bigger than I thought it was. And that's the moment it started hitting me. But I didn't, I did, at that point, didn't really know that what I was going to do. I was going to go back to work. You know, my company asked me to go back the next week to fly to Michigan for another business trip. So I was just going to go back to work. But uh, then all of a sudden, it started hitting a lot. And um, the next weekend is when I really f- realized what was going to happen in my life. It's when that Sunday after the plane crash, which was what, three days after the plane crash? A guy from our men's breakfast came up to me at church, and everybody wanted to talk to me. It was cool, but he asked me if I'd speak the next weekend at, at the men's breakfast. And all I knew, Dorothy, about men's breakfast is a bunch of old guys eating pancakes, right? <laughs> all these guys meet, eat pancakes, and do a little singing, right? I didn't know they invited half of Charlotte. And put it in our gym, and all of a sudden, 500 people show up. And I, and I don't know what's going on now. So I just said, God, give me something to say, right? And I said something. You know, and I got it out, and two men wanted to talk to me after I got done. And one was from Bank of America, one was from Wachovia, and they had people on the plane with me. So, okay, I, was, I had no big deal with that. 
But what happened at that next moment changed everything. That's the moment that everything changed in my life. Because I was standing there, and all of a sudden, this elderly lady was in the back of the room. Now, you got to envision this, Dorothy. You envision a gym, right? A gym with a stage at the end. That's how our gym and our church is set up. So I was towards, that, towards the stage side. This lady's in the back of the gym staring at me. All of a sudden, I look at her. She catches my eye, right? So all of a sudden, she now has permission, right, to come see me. So she makes her way up and interrupts that conversation. And I'm just interrupts it. Comes up and grabs me. And I'm like, whoa. It's like, what's going on? Are people grabbing me, right? But she looked me in the eye and said something that changed everything. She looked and said, I was questioning if there was a God. And I don't believe in miracles. But you are physical evidence that there is a God. And he does miracles. And all of a sudden, yeah, these two guys are starting to cry. I mean, these guys are bawling in public. I've never seen two men cry like this in my life. And all of a sudden, she just looks at me one more time, just walks away. I've never seen her again. Wow. And I'm sitting there thinking, all of a sudden, my minister's in the back watching this. He's like, look, I'm looking at him like, what happened? And all of a sudden, I realized what happened to me that day on January 15th, it impacted somebody. Before she goes to her great beyond and whatever that is, now believes there's a God who does miracles because I am physical evidence. Now is the moment I said, I've got a bigger mission. I've got a bigger mission in my life. I have, there's a bigger way to contribute now than what I was playing. And that's what set me on this whole course I'm on right now, that moment. I mean, you just, you knew that you had to share this message. And so you had mentioned that, you know, the moments in your life before the crash really did prepare you for what happened that day. What do you mean by that? When I was putting, reading, I, wanted, I knew I wanted to do a book, but I was like, what do I do a book about, right? I got experience. But what I started thinking about is, and I was going back in my life, I'm like, and I thought about one thing, and this triggered everything, Dorothy. It sort of triggered the entire opening of thinking about all these moments in my life. Is I remember when I was 12 years old, and I was in Boy Scouts. And when they have this award in Boy Scouts called Order of the Arrow, and basically it's a camping and oratorium award. Basically, it's the highest level of camping and oratorium you can do in the Boy Scouts. Right? I mean, it's intense. I tell people it's like survivor on steroids, right? I mean, you're doing activities, and they give you this log, and you got to whittle a log while you're doing these activities, and you're 12 years old, and your dad drops you off and says, I'll see you in two days. So you're, you're by yourself, so you really have to man up, right? But we had to do something during that activities. We had to get across the river to go to the next activity. It was on the other side. Now, yeah, I tell people you can walk down the riverbed and go across the bridge like a lot of people did, but we just, our little group decided to swim across the river to get to the other side so we had more time to whittle our log. And I, I thought, I said, was that the moment when I was 12 years old that gave me the certainty to do what I did and jump in the water, swim, to go to that ferry? Because I, I, I carried my backpack across, I swam in a river with a backpack when I was 12 years old, and I had the certainty of a skill set called swimming. It helped me save my life that day. I said, how many of those moments in my life did I have like that that you didn't think about, but also maybe prepared me for what was going on, whether it was a leadership role or working together as a team or giving direction? Right. And I saw all these different moments I had that was a leader and did this and that. I was like, wow, these moments did add up. Every moment in our life meant something. And you just don't know that when that moment that you don't think means anything is going to show in your life. And all of a sudden, these things started coming to me. And, and, and all of a sudden, when, when the light bulb, light bulb went off, is when I'm sitting exactly where you're sitting, sitting right here. My wife got a phone call, Dorothy. And she got a, and it's a couple of neighbors down our street, a couple of older ladies. And you know, they call, they need help, right? And they need, that day, they couldn't get your TV on. Now, I'm pretty good at getting TVs on. You know, that's one of the skill sets I'm really, really good at. So my wife calls me where I'm sitting right here. She goes, can you go down and help them get your TV on? I said, no, no problem, right? You can do anything for your neighbors, right? Especially a bunch of, a couple older ladies. 
right? They're older ladies, right? So I go down there and I help these older ladies and it takes me like 30 seconds, right? It's not that big deal. But, you know, they wanted to repay me, right? So they said, would you stay for milk and cookies? Now, I love milk and cookies, right? Listen, you know, I'm all in. Plus, these older ladies could probably bake, right? They're old ladies. They could probably bake. So I'm all in, right? So they're getting milk and cookies, and I'm sitting there on the couch, and I'm looking. They have a coffee table out front. So I'm flipping through the books, right? Just, and also, I'm flipping through this book, and I see these pictures of these concentration camps. I'm like, I love World War II history. I, I read about it. I'll listen to it. I'll watch it. I'll do anything around World War II. I'm enthralled. Like, wow, this is pretty cool. You don't see these kind of pictures, right? So they come out and say, hey, where'd you get these pictures? They said, well, we were there. And also, they rolled up their sleeves and showed me their arms with their numbers down their arms. And I said, what? Because we were there. And they said, can I record this story? And they were like 77 years old then, right? I mean, they're not going to be around much longer. And these people are passing away pretty quick. They wouldn't let me record it. They said, we will tell you the story. So it was two hours. They told me the story of surviving a concentration camp. And they survived and thrived. And I said, number two thing, number one, that moment set their whole life up and they survived and thrived. How many more people are out there who have a pity party going on in their mind? If they could talk to somebody just like this, who went through something in one of the most horrific situations in the history of the world and survived it, if I could set these people up, how many people can I help? And that's what started me on this trajectory of helping people around their traumatic life experiences. That moment is the one that said, how many times, how many people can I hook up who've gone through something horrific? Let you talk to them. Yeah, you've had a bad day. Yes, you went through a hurricane. I got it. Let me get, let you talk to these people. They survived it. You can survive it too. And that's all of a sudden now all these moments, that's all these moments matter started coming together for me. There's, I mean, there's so much to unpack in what you just said. And I think a couple of things just to bring it back to the listeners. I mean, you mentioned how these experience in your life, you know, like crossing that river when you were 12 prepared you to be able to survive this experience with the miracle on the Hudson. And I think that that's true, not just for, you know, life and death situations, but really any opportunity. You know, it's not just about having an opportunity in front of you, but being the person who's able to recognize that opportunity and take advantage of it. So all of these things that happen to us in our life that, you know, may feel very negative or may feel very challenging, you know, dealing with an especially difficult boss or getting fired from a job or any number of of things that could happen to you, are just preparing you for the opportunities that are to come and are turning you into the person who's going to be ready for those. So I think that that's really important to recognize. And then also, you know, just, just like you said, I mean, these horrific things that can happen in a person's life, you know, we can't control those things that happen to us, but what we can control is the way that we react to them. So tell me, Dave, what is the the advice? I mean, I know there's so much that goes into this, but you know, what is the first step you know, for someone who has been through something so traumatic, so life-shattering to be able to move forward instead of being swallowed up by it? There's a few things, but I think the first step, and this is one thing I learned by being around Tony, traveling with him and seeing, because he's always around people who are challenges. So I've seen this over the pattern. There's patterns, right? And the pattern I've seen is this. The geniuses, the people who get out of this are the ones who become conscious of the meanings they're attaching to things. Uh, because you know, the meaning, your meaning equals the emotion of your life, and emotion is your life. So if you can become conscious of these meanings that you're attaching, like, why am I sad? Why am I, you know, I'll become conscious of it, you can address it. And I've seen this pattern over and over and over 
by being around and learning, you know, being around Tony and seeing how he, how they do it. I think that the one first thing I tell people is first thing you got to do is become conscious of the meaning you're having, whether you're sadness, rage, you know, um, whatever it may be, become conscious of it. So then once you become conscious of it, then you say, okay, how can I attack that? How can I approach that? Or how can I do something differently? Right. Or who, what resource do I need to be able to help me get through this? It might be somebody like the two old ladies down the street. You just need to talk to somebody who's gone through something different so they can give you a point of perspective. It's like, you know, yes, I understand you had a bad day. You go through a hurricane. You lost your house, right? Your dog died. I got it. Let me tell you what it's like when I had to go bury myself in, in, in uh, manure to save myself. Let me tell you, let's talk about that. And all of a sudden, people get that perspective because they have a meaning now. So it starts with meaning. What's the next step? And the second step that I tell people is you got to get yourself in the right state of mind. And number one, People get, if you see people who are really upset or down or in a depressed state, they usually have a certain state they approach. Things. They're looking down, they're shallow breathing. It's the first thing you guys got to change the way you move your body because moving your body, emotion equals emotion. Again, we talk about emotion. So if you change the way you move your body, you change the way you manage your state. Because as soon as you start move, moving your body, you change the way the endorphins react in your body. All of a sudden, things change. So do, how many people, Dorothy, have you seen are sad one moment or mad one moment? And all of a sudden, they hear something or see something, all of a sudden, they're happy again. Oh, well, I just found $10 on the, on the ground. I'm happy now. Happens all the time. Happens all the time. So it's a matter of the way you move your body. And the third is what I call the virtual references, like I talked about the older, the old, two older ladies. Finding a virtual reference who have been through something as bad, if not worse than you have, to be able to interact with. Those are three things I talk about in my TED Talk, about how to really overcome these kind of things and how I did and how I help people do that when they, uh, when they ask me. Well, so a big part of this is really leaning on other people's experiences and, and learning from these people. So I'm curious, you know, what kind of mentors have you had in your life? And has that been a, a very big part of, of your success, both before the crash and after? Well, mentors have been an extremely important part of my life, even when I didn't know I had a mentor. And the reason I share that is when I got out of college in 1983, when I got my first job, down here in Charlotte, North Carolina. It, it was my third stop, and my first job was here in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I live right now. And I was managing a restaurant. I was actually the second assistant manager, which means I had the third shift, second to third shift. I had the bad shift, right? But there was a gentleman, his wife kept coming in every night. They'd have their ice cream and coffee every night. They'd go out for their date night, right? Do the thing. And he started talking to me. And all I knew about this gentleman, his name was Bill. First thing I think about Bill is he wore a flannel shirt and drove a pickup truck. That's all I knew about Bill. So what do you do? You have a preconceived idea, right? All of a sudden, you find out this gentleman owns 80 movie theaters in North and South Carolina. He's a multimillionaire. And his nickname was the Sam Walton of Charlotte. He was a guy you would never know who's the richest guy in Charlotte. And all of a sudden, he took me under his wing. And he, he started giving me these lessons that he learned all these years. You know, it sort of took me. So the first lesson was, and it was, it was three days before Christmas in 1983. And once again, I had second shift, right? Three days before Christmas. I had the bad shift. He came in and he said, come on out. I want to show you something. So he walked down to the, to the, uh, the lot and he said, I want to show you what I got Bonnie for Christmas. It's awesome. It was Bonnie. It was a brand new blue Corvette. It was gorgeous. And I'd never seen a car like this up close. But you got to remember, I, I, I was like, I said, this is really cool, Bill. He goes, listen, jump in. We're going to take a spin. So he threw me the key. He said, all I ask you is this. Point this thing in the right direction because once you touch it, it's going to take off. <laughs> So we take off and I'm driving this thing. Very cool. We get out there. Bill, that's cool, man. She's going to love this thing. He goes, you need one of these. I said, Bill, I'm making $13,600 a year. 
I can barely afford to pay my rent. He goes, that's what you got to change. You got to change your mindset. He said, you got to start thinking bigger. You're, you're playing at a level that you'll never grow. And all of a sudden, he's, that moment, he started mentoring me. He started giving me these lessons he learned from the 20s on. He started mentoring me. And I'll fast forward to 1997 because my mom had just passed away. And being the eldest son, my dad was a wreck. My sister and I basically had to take over, handle the, handle the business, right? So I was in business mode. I wasn't in grieving mode. So I called Bill up. I said, Bill, my mom passed away. He goes, well, come on over. Bought me over to study. And if we sit down, we talk for a couple minutes. And Bill said, listen, I want to tell you something. He says, I've got lung cancer. So he was telling me, he's getting me ready to go, right? And I'm thinking, what? So he gets up and walks over to his desk. He opens up the drawer and pulls out these crumpled old papers. He comes down, sits right next to me. He says, I want to give you this. I'm like, what is it? He goes, these are the notes that my mentor gave me in 1929. These are the principles that I built my business on in 1929 to what it is. He says, I want to give this to you. He said, on one condition. I said, well, he goes, you got to pass it on to somebody else. You got to take this. You do not let it die with you. So he, he gave me these notes, right? And these are basically 12 principles that he wrote with his mentor in 1929, right before the depression. And this is, this is gold. So what do, what do I do with it? I put it in a journal. I don't do anything with it, right? Passes away. Right. Then Tony Robb has asked me to be his security. So now Tony's taking over. So one of the lessons I tell people, Dorothy, is when one mentor passes, another one will come in. But you have to keep your eyes open, right? Because they will come into your life. You have to receive them. But they may not be evident to you, right? You fast forward to 2009, I go through this plane crash. Things are changing in my life. So last summer, I've been speaking now for a few years. Last summer, July is usually a pretty slow month for me, unfortunately. So I was in here doing some planning where I'm sitting right now. now. So I go to this journal, open it up, find these notes. I'm like, whoa, I can see these notes from 20 some years, right? And all of a sudden I'm reading these notes like, this is gold. And I said, I've not lived up to my promise. I've got to pass this on. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, these are notes that were written in 1929. How can I share this now with a bigger group of people? So that's what I've been doing for the last several months, immersing myself, maybe learning this. So I told somebody a few weeks ago, I had lunch with him, I said, I feel like an idiot. You know, I had these notes for 20-some years, and I didn't do anything with it. He says, and he's reminded me, he said, see, information will come to you when you're ready for it. When I was in 1997, I wasn't ready for it. I'm ready for it now. And it's my turn to be that person, to be the bill to somebody. So now that's what I'm doing now. I'm trying to find at least 10 people this year that I can teach these to, so then they can take it to 10 people. I can just get this thing out. So it's, he left it with me. So that's, I think, the power of mentors. I think everybody's got mentors in their life, but they may not recognize them. They may not be ready to have the mentor, so they're, they're not evident. But people will show up in your life for a reason and a purpose, and it will serve you. I couldn't agree more. And I think what you said is so true, too, that you often don't even recognize what's in front of you when you see it. But you know, being open to opportunities and you know, welcoming them in when they present themselves and just taking advantage of that is so critical. So I'm curious, Dave, you know, what these 12... These 12 notes, you know, are they about money, about growing a business, you know, personal development? What, what are, what's the subject matter? Well, his first, first one that he had, he's written down. And basically what he did is he wrote down like a principle and it's described in financially, emotionally, spiritually, physically, relationships, and went through all that for each one of these principles. And his first principle is pretty basic. You think about it, like, well, it's pretty basic, but it's like, this is back in the 20s. And these people are thinking this way in the 20s, right? And you got to remember, what, what was the 20s all about? It was all about roaring 20s. It was all about wealth and 
opulence. And all of a sudden you have what? Crash. And his first one was taking personal responsibility. People need to take their own personal responsibility. So he wrote this whole, like, I hate to use the word manifesto, but, you know, four or five pages of notes on how to take personal responsibility in all these different aspects of your life, right? And it's like you sit there thinking, it's, a, it's pretty basic stuff, but the way he puts it, he built a multi-hundred million dollar business on these principles. And, and so that was the first one. How, how do you take personal responsibility in every area of your life, even spiritually, right? I mean, it's, that's amazing. Oh, I just, I love that little taste. And I'm sure if that's number one, the other 11 are equally powerful. I mean, I think when it comes to responsibility, one thing that people tend to miss is that there's a difference between liability and accountability. I mean, I think that in order to really reach any sort of true success, we need to take 100% accountability for what happens to us. And if we use the Miracle on the Hudson as an example, you obviously weren't liable for that plane crash, that experience, but you are accountable for the way that you react to it. And owning that in every area of our life is absolutely the number one first step to getting anywhere. So, you know, I love that. Dave, tell me more about, you know, you're looking to find 10 people to teach these. Is this a mastermind? Is this one-on-one coaching? What is that going to look like? That's a great, great question because I've had people approach me to do one-on-one with them. But I also think if I could take a small group, two or three people, and just, you know, I've, got, I get through, I've sort of figured out how to do this. Take two or three people and just immerse them, one, one of these principles every month, and just go deep. Because one thing I learned around being around Tony is when he, when, when he does his stuff, he takes you deep. He immerses you in. And that's why he does these long weekends. He immerses you in, right? So I'm going to take this sort of the same, same approach. I'm going to take these 12, one a month. And I think maybe one, if people want to do one-on-one, great. If they want to do a small group, great. But I'm going to find at least 10 people who, want to, who really want to grasp onto this and say, you know what? I've got gold now. What can I do with this gold? Because I've had some success. But now it's amazing when now the success has gone a whole different direction. I mean, it's, it's to the point where I am now interacting with billionaires who want me to talk to them. I, I talked to a billionaire last night from Vancouver, Canada, who wants to talk to me about helping him build something up. And I'm thinking, who am I, right? But this is, this is the power of it. When you, have, when you have the mindset, right, and you understand how, how to do it, people will come into your life. And that's, that's one thing I've actually been doing a series this week about that on, my, on LinkedIn about you know, these five things that... I learned from being around the top 5% people, these little principles like this. I'm sort of immersing people into it a little bit. I couldn't agree more with all of this, Dave. So for anyone listening who is just lit up right now, resonating with what you're saying, how can they get in touch with you and potentially be one of these 10 people? Well, all they got to do is really either one or two ways. Go to my website, DaveSandersonSpeaks.com. You can get a hold of me there. But if for, uh, for these 10 people, what I'm doing is interact with me directly. Dave at DaveSandersonSpeaks.com. I, I want to talk to you. Directly. I want to see if you, I hate to use the word, but earn it. You have to be able to really want it and not just take it and use, you know, take it on, right? Just, you want to take this journey because I, I've taken this journey now over since 1983, but really intensely over the last nine months. And it's amazing. It's what it's done for me. The people are now, my, you would have never been in my life right here. This, if this hadn't happened because all of a sudden a mutual friend recommended me to you who now, who I'm masterminding with who is one of the top masterminders in the country. This is how powerful this stuff is. So that's the best way for people to get in touch with me. I love to have the interact if they want to have more information about what I'm doing. 
Amazing. Well, we'll include that in the show notes. So anyone who's interested in reaching out to Dave, go there to grab that info. And unfortunately, Dave, we are running out of time. So I'd like to move into what I call the impact round. So I'm going to ask you a series of short questions and I'd love for you to just respond with the first answer that pops into your head. You ready? You got it. All right. So Dave, who has been the most impactful person in your journey to do well and achieve financial success or success in your career? I would say Tony Robbins. That is a no-brainer. Absolutely. And who's been the most impactful person in feeding your drive to do good and make an impact? I would say a lady by the name of Kay Wilkins. She is a senior, one of the senior vice presidents of the American Red Cross. She has really given me a different perspective on contribution. I love that. Can you share a little bit, just a little bit more? How has she shifted it? Well, you know, I got to meet Kay about four years ago, five years ago, and I did an event for her down in New Orleans. But what I found out when Kay and I got together, this is, Kay and I became very, very, very close friends now. She was the face of Katrina. When Katrina happened, when, if people go back to that time, it wasn't good. No one was managing it. All of a sudden, General Honoré comes in and Kay comes in from the Red Cross. They team up and get that thing cleaned up. So she is world known about how to really handle the crisis at that level. So when she asked me to speak, I was honored, of course. But then she and I became close friends because she saw how I was helping people and how not only helping people through the Red Cross and helping people, I saw the impact she's had not only in New Orleans, but globally. And now she's one of my best friends. She's actually part, part of my book that I uh, wrote, Moments Matter, because it means that much to me. Her. Amazing. And Dave, when you're having a bad day, what do you do to get yourself out of the funk? Do you have any sort of regular personal development practice? That's a great question, because I was in a meeting once at our church, Dorothy, and that's going to be a very short answer. I was on the executive committee, and we were getting a little contentious. Things were not going real well. So the minister was next to me, and I said, kid, what would Jesus do when he had a bad day? Because Jesus, every day in Jesus' life was a great day. He had some bad days. And what Jesus would do is he'd go back, he would pray. So when things go a little sideways for me, I'll just take, take a few minutes. I'll just go out and pray and just give me guidance, give me wisdom. And all of a sudden, it sort of opens my mind back up. It's like, okay, it's not about me. When you start making it about you, it's when you make it a bad day. When you talk about other people, you can't make it a bad day. It's about other people. I love that. I couldn't agree more. Well, and Dave, for a little two-part answer to this question, I'd like to know, first of all, where people can go to find your book. And then second, other than your own, what book do you find yourself recommending to people most often? I'll answer two from the second one first. The first book that I always recommend first is The Fourth Turning by Strauss and Howe. And the reason why is I got that book and it basically helps you understand and predict what the trends are going to be coming up, not only in business, but also in relationships in your life. It's a great book because it, the things that they talk about come true because everything happens in a season, winter, spring, summer, fall in your life, every aspect. And it helps you understand why and, and what to predict next. Or you may be in a winter financially, you may be in a, in a summer when it comes to relationships, but there's going to be a fall coming and there's going to be a spring coming so you can predict. And well, you can find my books, if you go to Amazon, you can get it in Kindle or, or, hard, or soft copy. But if they contact me directly, what I'll do is go to my website, DaveSandersonSpeaks.com. I'll send it to them directly and I'll give you a personalized uh, autograph. They go, go directly to my website. Oh my gosh, what an amazing offer, Dave. Wow. Well, definitely everyone listening, take advantage of that. That is incredible. Lastly, Dave, what is the best piece of advice related to happiness that you would give our listeners? I, yeah, and one thing, I think everybody's goal is to be happy. That is the number one goal. See, true happiness comes from joy. And joy comes from the duty you give, the value you give to other people. So if you look at this, look at that equation, you know, you really get happy just from giving value to other people. So if, you're, if you want to be happy, add value to somebody's life. 
know, that's what I, I so I was every day, if I could add value to one person's life, I've accomplished my mission, which happiness is part of my mission statement. Amazing. And Dave, as you know, here on the show, we have what I like to call the do well and do good challenge. So this is where I encourage our listeners who want to give back to contribute to the nonprofits that are nominated by my guests. Could you tell me what organization you're nominating? I have a feeling what it might be and why it's so meaningful. Well, I think, of course, I'm going to say the American Red Cross, but not only for financially, but also time, you know, volunteering, because some places have issues getting people, so volunteering, and of course, blood and or platelets. And right now, I really focus on platelets because I really focus on getting cancer beat, and giving platelets helps the cancer patients recover much quicker. So the Red Cross, you can be able to donate three different ways, financially, through your volunteering of time, and also through your, uh, your physical blood and platelets. Fantastic. Well, in the show notes, everyone, we will link to obviously a donation link for the Red Cross, but also a link to find a blood drive or a platelet drive near you because I definitely echo Dave. That is an incredible way to give back and it is absolutely free. Lastly, Dave, before we say goodbye, where can our listeners go to connect with you? You mentioned they should email you if they want the book or to be involved in that 10-person group. Um, Where else do you post content or do you publish online? LinkedIn is probably my favorite. I do a lot of Facebook, but I start with LinkedIn. So David Sanderson at LinkedIn, and every day I put out brand new content. So my goal this year, Dorothy, is to do 300 pieces of new content for people so they can hear sort of work, and you'll get some of the content I learned from Bill and Tony and some other people that are sprinkled in here. Because it all comes together, right? It's not all new stuff, but it's how do you put it together? So Go to LinkedIn for that. And it's always an over also on Facebook at Dave Sanderson. Dave Sanderson Speaks International. Amazing. Well, Dave, you truly are just a, a miracle. The fact that you are here, the fact that you survived and are able to share your story and turn it into so much meaning for the people that you talk to. So thank you for that. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much. I look forward to helping you any way I can, Dorothy. All right, everyone, that's our show. Now, before I sign off, I want to introduce any new listeners to how the Do Well and Do Good Challenge works. There are two ways that you can participate. The first is if you are looking to do more to give back, I encourage you to contribute to any of the nonprofits nominated by my guests. Send a screenshot of your receipt to challenge at dowellanddogood.co and your donation will be included in our monthly tally of the tangible impact this podcast is having. The second way you can participate is absolutely free and that's by voting. See, in the first couple days of each month, we host a vote inside of our free Facebook community to determine which of the nonprofits nominated the month before that I will then donate a portion of my advertising agency's profits to. It's an awesome way to make your voice heard, and we've been able to raise money for some incredible organizations doing good in the world. So if you'd like to be a part of it, then head over to dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook, where you'll find a link to join the group. Once you're inside, I'm also sharing tips, ideas, resources, and more to help you both increase your income and your impact. We're having so much fun inside there. So head over again to dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook, and I'll see you on the inside. It means the world to me to earn your time. So thank you so much for listening.